Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Job chapter 28, the majestic hymn to wisdom. And we're joined today by Dr. Scott Jones. Now, Scott is professor of biblical studies at Covenant College. Uh, and I noticed, Scott, I was looking at your um, your website there at the college, and you mentioned that you like watching British mysteries. You ever yeah, watch Endeavor? I think Endeavor yes. is the one that said it. I like in, I liked Endeavor a lot, yes. And I, I can't remember, was that or was it his predecessor? And I can't remember all the names, but there was the one previous to Endeavor, and then there was one previous to that. So there was Morse. And Inspector then, Morse, yeah. And Lewis, and then Endeavor. Anyway, um, but yeah, there was a, I think there was a joke at some point about Oxford and the setting of Oxford for the Morse and things, and that it, it, it would seem that Oxford was the murder capital of the world based on that show. <laughs> I actually, when, when I taught at Oxford, I had a student who told me that he loved the, watching those, but that it made him nervous to come to Oxford <laughs> yeah. as a student because yeah. a person would die every week in Oxford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't just bring you on here to talk about British mysteries, <laughs> although I do always appreciate the little details that faculty put up on their websites. It's, it's hard to well, I have to put something. I mean, you know, some people put like <laughs> what kind of wine they like or something, but I, I, something a little personal. All. Right. At least you didn't just put, I like reading books. I mean, yeah, of course, I knew I couldn't see do behind that. You I knew that I couldn't you do that. Yeah, you clearly do like reading books. But yeah. Uh, and Job, I think, is, you know, a particular book that you seem to enjoy reading. In fact, you have written books about Job. Uh, so you have Rumors of Wisdom, Job 28 as poetry, which is the reason why we thought of you uh, to come on and help us walk through Job 28. Um, yeah. But you also have written the entry on Job in the Oxford Handbook of Wisdom and the Bible, which Edited by Will Kynes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. Which has a great cover, and I still, I'm very, way to go yes. finding that. Yes, I actually found this cover from a, um, was an art dealer in Israel who oh, they, yeah. they kindly gave OUP permission to put oh, good, that on the good. cover. Yeah, it's fantastic. For those of you who can't see, you just have to go out and check the OUP website, but it's, yeah. a, it's this yeah. dark and moody mm -hmm. uh, painting of Kohelet. Yeah. Will is very good at finding covers for his books. Yeah. His yeah. obituary for wisdom literature yeah. is also Agreed. a nice yeah. cover book. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. That far right too much here. Time. See that cover right yeah. there. Yeah, that's that's a nice, nice, yeah. nice cover. Uh, good job, Will. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so, but I do want to, besides talking about the cover of the book, uh, what's inside is probably even more valuable. And in fact, Joe, um, Scott's chapter on Job, I just thought was a very clear uh, and comprehensive uh, introduction to Job. And it's difficult to be comprehensive uh, with Job while being clear. But for our listeners who are looking for, you know, you just want, you know, the book of Job in 20 pages or mm -hmm. so, uh, I strongly recommend Scott's chapter in this book. But you also, for the, the listener who wants to dig even deeper into Job, uh, Scott's working on the Job commentary in the Old Testament library series, which I think is a fantastic series. Um, now, when, how long is the listener going to have to wait <laughs> until they get an opportunity to read that? Um, well, 
The due date is for is about ten years from now. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Yeah, and that's the due date. So, so we'll, we'll see. So it might be 20, 30 years after. <laughs> Just be patient. In the meantime, there are plenty of good commentaries on Job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But yes, it, Job has a way, and it's, it, it has a way of, um, I don't feel like as I'm working on Job as much as Job is working on me. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it takes you, and that's how you, you sort of get stuck. It can sound negative i don't really mean it negative and it, it can feel like that it can be maddening but um i recently heard someone talk about some epic um process of bible translation for a new version that's coming out soon and they said this faculty of so-and-so did the whole bible in a year and i was like and i thought i can't even translate job in a year oh, yeah. i don't know how i don't know what they're looking at uh, but anyway, <laughs> must be a different Bible. Than yeah, the they got a different Bible. So, Scott, um, we just talked about how you're doing this research on Job, uh, and you've, it's kind of in the process of consuming you, I guess. But what first drew you to Job? Was there any personal connection you had with the book, or is just an intellectual interest? Well, this is uh, once again one of the um, answers that probably seems. Um, too pedestrian. Everybody would like a better answer than this, but it is largely because my uh, one of my close supervisors in doctoral work was moving into working on Job, uh-huh. and uh, there was a seminar in our first year of um, of uh, coursework in Princeton Seminary on um, philology and text criticism, various things like this. And we were encouraged to pick texts that would bear uh, some kind of really in-depth study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the teacher of that seminar, Liang Xiao, recommended maybe this chapter. So that was my first semester. And I uh, got into researching this chapter my first semester. At the time, I didn't think I was work- going to work on Job. Um, I think I went in maybe thinking I would do something on Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Um, but it came back around for time for a uh, dissertation proposal and the like. And um, folks there encouraged me to continue with that. So some of it is very practical. I did really enjoy it. I loved it. Um, but some of it is just, you should do this. And I said, okay. <laughs> sure. But little did you know what you were going to do at that point. Right. Right. And now, Scott, how do you see Job chapter 28, this hymn to wisdom, how do you see it fitting in the book of Job as a whole? Well, as you know, uh, and I think the reason that you asked the question was because many people don't see it fitting. Um, I wonder, as you asked the question, I wonder how much that's a scholarly point of view. For example, if I just handed someone the book of Job, I wonder if if everyone would come away thinking, wow, that chapter 28 sure is strange and weird and it doesn't fit. Now, maybe they would. Obviously, people have thought that for a long time. It's not something just someone just made up. Um, and then that makes me wonder how much people start to think it doesn't fit because they're told that it doesn't fit. Why do some scholars think it doesn't fit? But, in the right, book? exactly. Um, there uh, is... 
and and even the way that you know you asked the question about the hymn, calling it a hymn, mm-hmm. people will call it a hymn or a chorus or a meditation or something. And it all um, suggests that it is some sort of break in tone okay. um, from what is previous, um, and that it becomes maybe meditative at this point. As you know, the book is structured around these very heated debates, and at this point in the book, these debates are starting to um, fizzle out and become ever stranger because certain characters are saying things that sounded like something they wouldn't have said a couple of minutes back. Um, and so then you get this chapter 28 and um, it's it just seems to have a different voice than mm-hmm. what's previous. And I think that's the main reason that people see it as something that may have been added later. Um, and there are various scholars who believe that some um, previous, uh, excuse me, more recent views uh, by David Kleins and Eric Greenstein have suggested that it has become displaced from uh, a textual, um, you know, rummaging around of folios, and it belongs late, even later with Elihu. Um, but there are just about as many um, theories about where it goes uh, as you could imagine. And I think that main reason of tone and subject matter is that's probably the main reason why people see it as odd. Yeah. Well, and also it seems to be fairly self-contained. Like yep. one of the reasons people argue you could put it in different places is because mm-hmm. you could put it in different places. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to just flow out of the chapter before it or lead into the chapter. It sits yeah. on its own really nicely. Yeah. And but so, how do you see, sorry, how do you see it fitting into the book as a whole? Um, I suppose I could answer that question in different ways. Um, there have been folks who see it less uh, that are worried less about who's it assigned to for, is it so far, for example, Michael Fox has argued that it's really so far speech um, or is it Job or is it so-and-so and does it belong between 27 and 29? Um, Carol Newsom has talked about it being almost like um, the, like a voice behind the curtain sort of thing uh, from the author. Um, and I think that's a really interesting viewpoint um, in that it definitely ties back to uh, the larger structure of the book that begins with a prologue, so-called, or an opening narrative that focuses on the fear of God and turning from evil, which of course is prominent at the end of 28. And so that's more at a, a very big level, a meta level, like something that is uh, not just about these particulars of who spoke it, but that it is integrated almost in the mind of the editor or in the mind of the author. Um, so that answers your question and it doesn't answer your question in a way, right? Um, I do think that it fits with the theology of Job as a whole, at least as far as I understand it. Um, I don't know, uh, how it relates to, uh, a speaker, whether that be Job or Zophar or Elihu or any others, um, Conf- like with certainty, but I also have no evidence to the contrary that it doesn't fit. It's definitely odd, um, yeah. but it, it would certainly be helpful if any of these speculations 
were able to be substantiated by appeal to any kind of evidence anywhere at all. Right. And and I'm not saying that means that it's not true. I'm just saying that it, it it's speculation. And so in those cases, um, I tend to default to trying to explain it where it is without trying to be dogmatic about it. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Now, we'll probably get into this in more depth later, but I want to follow up on what you just said about how this chapter contributes to the theology of the book as a whole. How do you see that working out? Well, uh, this essentially sounds like a what is your idea of the theology of Job question? <laughs> I mean, and I mean, fair, because um, once again, I find it difficult to speak with one um, synthetic voice on the matter. Um, and of course, as you know, scholars have talked about Job and Job and theology being something that arises out of multiple voices and that in fact is the employment of multiple voices. So answering the question can be quite difficult in that one simply doesn't give an abstract statement about the book of the theology of the book of Job teaches X. Right. Um, I think that this is where you see other bits of the book um, at tension with one another and why people have also argued that other bits of the book, say for example, the opening narrative or the closing narrative or the Elihu speeches, for example, seem to not fit as well. Um, because I think what we're finding is that the bits don't go together in a way that produces a single statement summary. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if I can be a bit more traditional for a minute, I would probably say that a lot of what Job teaches us uh, is about the relationship between uh, wisdom and fear of the Lord. It is about, um, it's sort of a dramatic irony of uh, an audience knowing something about something that Job may be going through that Job doesn't know. The fr friends of Job think they know and they don't know, and Job thinks he knows and he doesn't know. And um, so there's a lot of assumption on everyone's part about what's going on and why. Um, only to find out at the end, depending on how you characterize the God speeches at the end between 38 and 41, that it's really sort of sounds like none of those reasons is correct, at least according if that narrative is, is something that we should heed and listen to and think that that's really what God is saying in 38 to 41. And it, he sort of sounds like I'm doing this for, you know, crazy reasons, kind of like ostrich reasons, you know, or <laughs> Leviathan reasons. And you're just like, huh, okay. And then Job is, depending on how you characterize it, either willing to submit to that and, and, and humble himself, or he's been silenced by God's power or whatever people say, right? Um, so at the very least, if I were abstracting, I would say that it does teach us about what we think we know about the relationship between um, fear of God, obedience, serving the Lord, and terrible tragedy and, and evil befalling us and what all that means. Um, and I don't believe, I don't believe that the book of Job is um, working to dis 
to um, to say that every possible answer that we've ever given for those things is wrong, but I do think it challenges the assumption that we could give an answer. Um, and maybe some of the answers are basically like category mistakes or something like that. Right. So the book as a whole undercuts human confidence because we have all these different voices and it's hard to say which one is right. And one of the things that's happening throughout the book is people are shown to be wrong. We know right from the beginning <laughs> that we as readers know a lot of stuff that they don't know. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately God claims knowledge for himself that no one can know. Yep. Uh, so we need to be somewhat chased as interpreters of claiming we know what the book is all about. And Job 28 is making a similar kind of point in miniature about the I think so. of human Yeah. Life. And so that's yeah. a great, it's really helpful the way you put that, I think it helps me. Um, because I do think that in a, in a way, perhaps, depending on how you characterize Job 28, it could be, as you say, uh, part of the, the biggest part of some of its theology in miniature. Yeah. Scott, who do you uh, think is speaking in Job chapter sure. 28? I have treated it as Job's voice. Um, okay. I, I certainly understand the arguments that uh, there are things that are being said here that don't seem to fit very well with the kinds of things or the kind of tone Job has spoken with um, previously. Um, I understand Michael's argument, for example, about assigning it to Zophar and, you know, Ed's argument about Elihu and these kinds of things. Those make sense. Um, I suppose that I am just a little bit less adventurous in, um, in reassigning those things with a lack of data. And I, as I said, I don't think that that means that they're necessarily wrong. It's just not something that I would normally do. So I have made a made a try at reading it as Job's words. Um, and I think that it can make sense as Job's words to me, at least just about as well as it can make sense as anyone else's words. Um, but of course that's something that others will have to decide. Right. And at, to make it make sense as Job's words, people will try different things. Like, mm -hmm. you know, some will argue, I think this is Allison Lowe who says, you yeah. know, um, it's this kind of interlude where Job is kind of taking a, a break, stepping back from his suffering and thinking mm -hmm. about it from the outside. Some people mm -hmm. will say, you know, this actually resonates with people who are suffering. There are times in the midst yeah. of suffering where we're able to step outside and, and analyze it. How do you help it make sense within the context of what Job has gone through? Um, if it, it, way back when, which is, I guess, not w way back, but it's kind of a while ago. When was that? 2007 or eight or something. Um, I treated it largely as Job's response to his friends who claim to know about wisdom by searching out the tradition. And so his retort here would be characterizing his friends in the first, um, basically the first third of the chapter um, as these who claim to have searched, you know, the ends of the earth and found wisdom and really they don't have it because the first third is about really more about where wisdom can't be found than where it can be found. Yeah. Um, that's one uh, approach I've taken. Uh, I still think that's quite possible. Um, another, bit, another way I've approached it in an article on 
modern theology and modern epistemology is as um, presenting two different allegories about the nature of uh, knowledge and wisdom. And that is less tied to um, who the speaker is than it is simply uh, the th- what I think the theology or epistemology that I can say this chapter teaches. But if I'm answering the question in the way you posed it, I think I would probably go back to that original thinking that um, that Job is basically making a mockery of what he thinks his friends have said to have, have obtained uh, and claimed to know. Okay. Now, in your book on Job 28, uh, you dig pretty deeply into the ancient Near Eastern context, the background of this text. How does doing that help us understand what's going on? The, the, the issue that with that narrative, and the narrative is that this first 11 verses, 12 verses, really is less about mining process than it is about a journey of, a, of an ancient kind of first explorer to some fantastical region out beyond the border of civilization to find precious treasure um, is that it cuts against the grain of all of the translations that people have. And um, so then that leaves a lot of questions. Um, There are not only questions about why would you do that or what the background is, but also like, well, what do I do with this translation or why are you, you know, what does this mean? this is a bad translation or something like that. And I'm very sensitive to those things. I don't, um, not normally one of those that likes to, I don't enjoy telling people their Bible is wrong or they don't really know, or that's just, normally that's just not the case. Um, But uh, what I saw as I studied that poem and as I began to try to figure out how the language might be understood in a different sort of paradigm was looking at the words of the poem in yeah. Hebrew. I mean, this is yeah. why what we all are, you know, working to do or trained to do. And um, in several cases, probably four or five cases within those first 11 verses or so, there are words or phrases that if you were to look in the, any dictionary, most any dictionary, there would be a special meaning for the use of the word in Job 28. That is, <laughs> everywhere else it means this, but in Job 28 it means this. Okay, right. That's certainly possible. That's not impossible. It's, it, things happen like that. But it, I became a little bit, I was like, well, why is it so special? Is it because we have evidence to the otherwise or, or uh, to, the, to the contrary? Or is it because people don't really know what to do and they're kind of, kind of making something up? And that's all possible, too, because, you know, we, we frankly don't know a lot about the ancient Near East. I mean, we can say we do and we don't. Um, so I think kind of what I've learned in my way of engaging the Hebrew text or the Aramaic text, as the case may be, is to try to let the word be the most common version of itself until proven otherwise. There are absolutely specialized meanings of words. Absolutely there are. But what I began to find is that when I did that, that's when I felt like the metaphors that I had thought I had discovered, um, though I don't uh, hopefully claim to be, you know, this great uh, adventurer and, and find new things that no one's seen before, um, made sense. 
why don't we read through the first six verses? Some of the words that, that you're looking at um, reading in different ways. Yeah. Yep. Um, are they lie in the first six verses? Yeah, the first, um, especially, well, 10. Okay. But, yeah, verse one, verse four, right. verse 10, verse right. 11. So let, let me read that. In verse, yeah, yeah. verse yeah, yeah. one begins, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place mm -hmm. for gold to be refined. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted for more. Miners put an end to darkness and search out to the farthest bound, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. They open shafts in a valley away from human habitation. They are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended. I mean, I imagine like harness or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you totally do, right? Yeah, they sway suspended, remote from people. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, yada, yada, yada. We go on to verse... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 10. Yeah, 10 and 11, right? They cut out channels in the rocks and their eyes see every precious thing. The sources of the rivers, they probe hidden things they bring to light. So tell me a little yeah. bit about how you saw this was read mm -hmm. and translated in some of the words and then how you kind of landed on the other yeah. way. To read it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were to look at that word in verse one, um, Moza, that is translated there as mine. Okay. Um, we're talking about uh, Moza being something like a uh, a place of departure. It's an exit, right? It's something that something comes out of, and okay. um, it's like it's used of springs or a point of origin or something like that. Mm. So you might even think of something like us. What if we what if we said if there was a spring of silver, and you think, well, that's weird. What does that mean? Like, I don't know. I agree. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it, but it's kind of like a big rock candy mountain type thing or something like this. It's like, you know, that's really actually kind of closer to what's going on in the text, I think. Um, but we don't know what that is. And then we think, well, it must be like a mine. Well, that makes sense. He's talking about ore and metals and things. So that's, we're going to use what we know. And we're like, well, it's a mine. Okay. Well, once that's been decided, and that's not an unreasonable extension, mm -hmm. then we start going with this whole thing about mining. Well, then you get to verse three uh, in RSV, miners put an end to darkness. So there, there's no, um, there's no noun as a subject in that verse. It, it just says he, mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. So one of the things that I do, um, I don't normally talk about this chapter a lot to my undergraduate students, but there's one occasion in one class that I do and I give them parallel translations of ESV and NRSV, just because they kind of work. And I just tell them to show me where the differences are. And ESV right there says, man puts an end to darkness, which is still uh, an imposition because the text doesn't say man. It just says he. Hmm. It's actually so ambiguous that in verse 3 and, and following some traditions, and I think Ed Greenstein may think this as well, think that the subject of the whole first um, third of the chapter is God, hmm. not man and humans at all which shows you how flexible that can be so it, okay so miners put it into darkness and they search out the ore and this and the that verse four is especially difficult um so you get this um nrsv says shafts so if you really look at that it's a nahal or nahalim um normally those are you know it's like a it's like a wadi that mm -hmm. Is either dry or fills with water quickly. It could be used of a burial, you know, these kinds of things. Well, um, then you get this other bits of this verse, and this is probably the hardest part of the, the poem 
in this second part, they are forgotten by travelers. They sway suspended remote from people. And so our mind, we've decided it's a miner. We decided it's a shaft. We decided that they're swaying suspended. The word is the lull is dangle. Like in Proverbs, it's used of the dangling legs of the, the, lamp, the, the uh, disabled legs um, and, and these kinds of, or dangling curls like the name Delilah, right? And so we're just like, well, this must be like they're going down a vertical mine shaft and they're, like you said, running as a harness or something like this, right? Well, these, I mean, sure, it's possible if they ever did any mining like that. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the issue is like, I never, I'm not saying it, I'm, that I know enough to tell you for sure that that never happened, but I don't have, I'm looking in evidence for mining is certainly vertical mining that way. I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that that ever happened at all, ever okay. in that time. So these are one of these things where I'm starting to think, hmm, I, this could make some sense, but it could also just be we're doing our best and we're providing, we all have to do this in translation. We're providing a frame, right? And then you go down, as, as you said, down to cutting out channels in the rocks. Um, could that just be cutting out a mountain pass or could it just be cutting a mining shaft, right? And depends on what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then verse 11, the sources of the rivers they probe. That's an interesting one, especially when you compare it to ESV. He dams up the stream so they do not trickle. And you're like, well, that's really different. <laughs> um, so uh, ESV is being wooden to the Masoretic text. Um, and e- NRSV is actually using Ugaritic um, and some phrasing Ugaritic about the the dwelling place of the high god ale in near Kirbit Afka and others to say that they think that's what the, I mean you find that in your little notes right there in the you know VHS. Um, so there's another problematic issue. Um, but the sources of the rivers um, is very likely in the in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking, as I mentioned, the Canaanite high god Ale is said to dwell at the sources of the rivers and streams amidst the double deep. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a, at the very least, there's some sort of a, a mythology, right, being assumed here, I think. I don't know how much every listener or reader of Job would have known that. I don't know. Um, Job, in fact, I wonder how much anyone would know much of anything about what Job assumes. It's so, um, in a way, it's so intellectual. And there's so much going on. And you just think like, I don't think this is written for just a regular person, you know. But at the same time, um, I don't think it has to damning to do anything to do with damming upstream so they don't trickle. Uh, but I've heard people explain that as to well, there would be water in the mine shafts, and so they have to be, you know. It, so I'm not trying to make poke fun at anyone by doing that, but it is just just to, to show how much our translations, especially when we really don't know what model these are composed on, how much they're relying on us providing uh, mental paradigms. And so my job, my goal was simply to provide another one that might make sense, not to try to say, oh, you know, it's the only right way or anything, but just to say, well, what about this? Does this make sense? And of course, I think that it makes just as much sense or more, um, but not everyone does. So so you're instead of our modern view of what mining is, where people mm-hmm. 
know, they use dynamite and they explode out channels <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. they dangle down <laughs> on their, with their carabiners and, and yeah, yeah. harnesses and everything <clears throat> you're suggesting, well, maybe that's a modern imposition on this imagery, which is hard mm-hmm. to interpret in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and you found this ancient near Eastern parallel in Gilgamesh, so, you know, Gilgamesh traveling out mm-hmm. uh, and exploring new lands. And, and there mm-hmm. is a lot of kind of, uh, language of um, gems and jewels and, yep. so, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so then we get to the payoff question, okay. which yeah, is, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so besides just perhaps more accurately interpreting, translating this first according to what the original author had in mind, rather than our own image of what is being described here. How does that help us understand the message? Is there a difference in the message if we have that paradigm in mind that you've discovered rather than the one that many people use? Yeah, I, I do think the message in terms of like you said, you use the word payoff or the, the theology is not radically different. Um, I think still you have humans that through technological prowess are attempting to grasp at something through technique and to take it as an object Mm -hmm. that could be on the one hand that could be mining on the other hand that could be the first discoverer the gilgamesh quest for knowledge kind of thing i think that there is a perhaps a qualitative difference if you nestle it inside of this first discoverer narratives because they are um those are very common throughout Mesopotamian literature, Sumerian and Akkadian. Um, and kings are always claiming to be first discoverers. Um, so they'll often claim to have reached the sources of the rivers and they've gone up to uh, Lake Urmia, Lake Van, and up in the Hittite territories. And they've seen what no one has seen before. And that makes them the greatest. So I, I think that it's not a radical departure from someone who engages in mining technology to find um, something to treat as an object to be grasped. But I do think it, it is more based on the claim of an individual who takes pride in and um, values in this case, his um, grasping at, basically or do you star trek going where no man has gone before <laughs> so that he can say that he's done what and has what no one else has and i i, th- I mean I, th- I really think that is one of the easiest um this is not so much to the payoff as again back to the model um the easiest connections to make is with the ways that we treat uh, outer space hmm. and have for a long time so it's it's less about going down into the earth and things get dark as you go out and as you go out from things that are civilized or things that you know about things become strange Hmm. and they're you know they're martians and all these kinds of things right (laughs) now it used to be that that would be true even on maps of the world right there would be no one's been here and here there are cannibals here and these kinds of things well since we claim to have conquered the world now which of course we humans have not but it just gets moved to outer space and then you have the same narrative over again mm. you go out in the darkness and they're the martians and then you find this precious treasure and you reach mars and then whatever you you right. know you're the best in the universe um so i do i do think it at least it gets a little bit perhaps more at the uh, intention of 
what is going on with the human subject. And I tend to take it as a human subject um, in going on this journey and trying to grasp uh, this um, precious thing. Um, and so, and that's part of the reason I so recommend, recommend Gilgamesh so highly is I think that the entire um, Gilgamesh epic speaks to the exact same the, to, speaks to the exact same thing, the exact same theology as Job 28. Great. Scott, in verse 12, uh, we read, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Now, that's a kind of refrain in the chapter that uh, happens again in verse 20. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the answer that the poem gives to those questions? Where is wisdom to be found? Um, when it poses the question that way, of course, it makes it sound like it's in a place. Um, and I think what we find out and what the poem does later on, especially starting in verse 23, is that it's, it's not as much about locating it as an object in a place through a technique as it is um, as a part of a um, creative act that can only be uh, enacted by the divine. Um, So I think the way that the poem answers it is it begins this so-called answer in verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place. Well, of course it still uses the place metaphor. Okay. It's it's in a place, but then it tells you that he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Um, Oh, look. Yep. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure, he made a decree for the rain and a way of the thunderbolt. Then he saw it and declared it. So when he was in the midst of um, weighing the wind and apportioning the waters and dealing with the rain and the thunder thunderbolt is when he saw it. Uh, it sounds to me like he's making a storm. And then he saw wisdom during that act. And he established it and searched it out, which is interesting because it's on the God becomes the searcher, the prober of wisdom, but it can only be uh, found in the creative act of, of uh, apportioning and weighing out the elements of the cosmos. Mm. And you think, well, I can't really do that. And like, that's, I think that's exactly what the poem is saying. And then at that time he said, and this, this NRC says to humankind, Truly, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And then there's the question as to whether that's really the answer or whether it's a big cop-out. And that's people have a lot of problems with that because they'll say, well, it looks like there was this really magnificent poem that was so evocative, and then it ended with this just terribly trite and pedestrian answer of just like obeying. Um, and, uh, it's a, like, like proverbs or something, you know, gross like that, according to kind of their <laughs> attitude. Um, and, um, I, do, I think that a lot of the, a lot of our displeasure about that is again, once kind of our presumptions about what's going on and, oh, we want more, something more sophisticated than that. And really this is just taking a nice sophisticated poem and giving us some elementary school teaching or something. Um, And uh, it does seem to me that the fear of the Lord is one of those concepts that can be as simplistic 
or as profound as you'd like to make it. Mm. Um, and I think that the way we characterize that verse can sometimes mirror how we ourselves think about what the fear of the Lord is. Um, and of course, how we've been brought up and where we've heard the phrase and our, you know, uh, all these kinds of things. Um, it seems to me to argue for that, um, that type of submission and obedient submission um, that Job is praised for at the beginning of the book. Um, and interestingly, if, of course, if Job is the speaker of this, he simply told us something that God has said to humans or the humankind or the man with some debate about who that is that actually matches what Job already is. So yeah. he has wisdom if that's, if that's the case. Um, in that sense that I mentioned before that perhaps this poem is an allegory of two different ways of understanding the world. I think that it does take us back to a different way of understanding our modern um, tendencies, at least here in the West have been to praise our own exploit, uh, exploits and technologies um, and how uh, through human ingenuity, we can conquer the world. And I'm, I'm certainly not against human ingenuity. Um, that's not what I'm suggesting. Uh, but I do think that this poem may suggest that um, without proper humility and understanding one's place in the grand scheme of things, the cosmos as uh, created and governed by uh, God and submitting to that governance, that one's... Um, possible um, boasting hubris based on one's achievements is is misplaced and dangerous and that um, uh, that that could go terribly wrong so I um, there's some ideas yeah about kind of how I think that works I mean I think it's fascinating what you just said as a parallel to the research that you did on how to translate the first 11 verses right so <clears throat> Scholars come along and they're pretty confident that they can translate this really difficult and obscure imagery. But what they're actually producing is a translation that reflects the own, their own way of seeing the world, which sure. surprisingly has a lot to do with human ingenuity and yeah. technology <laughs> and our ability. Right. To, and, you know, you're suggesting, well, maybe we should be a little bit more humble and take our translation of this text from the ancient context from which it emerged and, and acknowledge we may not understand it directly. So there's, there's this, even the study of this text, and I think we see this all the time with Job, is it, it has the effect on us as yeah. we, that it's trying to communicate in its message. Yeah, I, I do think that. And I, it's, it is humbling. And uh, I remember in, um, in uh, one of the PhD seminars um, in doctor work, we had this uh, get togethers with all the, fac the faculty and the students. And, and sometimes one professor in particular, we kind of poke fun at another one for bringing his, um, his NJPS Tanakh that had English on one side and Hebrew on the other. You know, he should just have his Hebrew Bible. And, <laughs> and um, it was lighthearted and good natured. But the one responded is like, yeah, well, if you were doing Job, you would too. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I think that all the time, I, I mean, I'm working through it. And like, I mean, 
I'm not claiming to be the best in the world at Hebrew or anything. But I don't know kind of what I'm doing. And I, Job will make you feel like you don't. Um, so you're just like, well, sure. I'm glad I have this English translation right here. Um, and, you know, I'm working pretty hard at it. I, um, so, yeah, I do think that that maybe that's a part of what Job does for us in, in general. And in, in, I don't know. That sort of answer is, oh, what's Job about? I mean, here are some kinds of things, but I, I don't know. Or even with Bible translation. And I, I know that's difficult for students. Students want to know, uh, what do you think about this? Or what do you think? And I know they must be disappointed. And I try not to do it too much or be too cavalier. But sometimes it's like, I have no idea. I don't know yeah. what I don't know what Paul's talking about in this. How, how could you possibly know? That's crazy. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can make some good guesses. But and I, I just I feel like. That's the way that all of these things kind of work, and especially some of those works like Job. Is you find out the more that you, the deeper you get, the the less you feel you know, and that may, maybe that's part of. The, well, and that's kind of what Job twenty eight is saying, right? I mean, if we take the the mining imagery, the deeper they dig into the earth, yeah, they don't get any closer to wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, maybe if they dug all the way down and saw that wisdom was definitively not there, they would realize that yeah. that was a fool's errand from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's talk about one more thing, um, which is, and you've kind of alluded to this, but the description of wisdom here. So truly, the fear of the Lord—that is wisdom in verse twenty-eight—and to and to depart from evil mm-hmm. is understanding. If we've read through the book from the beginning, we've heard those phrases before. Right? No. This is the way that Job was described all the way at the beginning of the book. What do you think the significance is of that? It, it may uh, possibly um, tell us that Job's, um, Job's initial, uh, you know, his description, which is much like Abraham's description in some respects, is is still the ideal i don't know that Which, it, it, what's the description of abraham oh, you have in mind oh i'm sorry um well a god fearer the consummate god fearer so that in early judaism there was sometimes a debate about who was the consummate god fearer was it abraham or was it Job? and mm-hmm. most of the time um i oh, mean it depends on who you ask trying to think of who won. I think maybe Abraham won on that one. But <laughs> the idea is that that fear of the Lord connection and turning from evil connection, you see that um, certainly in the Akedah narrative and others that Abraham's, you know, now I know that you fear God and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe that that's, it's a refrain back to what was noted at the very beginning. I don't know that that necessarily means that it's saying Job never should have launched into his tirade in chapter three i'm not sure that that's what that suggests um but beyond the fact that they are it's a circling back to some of the vision of the opening narrative i'm not i'm not exactly sure what i would say that it teaches us mm-hmm. about job i i think i know what it teaches about wisdom but I, to your specific question i don't know how it answer that do you have a thought will did you well, I guess a lot of it has to do with whether we, if we see this as on Job's lips. Yes, then, right. Right. Then he understands what wisdom is here at the end of chapter 28. What we had, the description we had of him was from the narrator. It wasn't right. Yeah, that's now true. See, and he doesn't know that. Uh, uh, yes. We think he doesn't know that. Right. 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 
But we see that he has internalized the nature of wisdom here to some degree. Um, but if it's not on Job's lips, then some people, you know, think it's the narrator. It yes. could be the narrator once again reminding us, hey, Job is still a good guy. Here we right. are, in, you know, in chapter 28, after all that he said, right. uh, hey, remember how I described him at the beginning. I'm, you know, this still seems to fit for him. Or right. maybe you could read it exactly the opposite and narrator saying, hey, this is what wisdom is supposed to be, but yeah. look at what we saw <laughs> Job yeah. do. Uh, or if it's if it's so far, for example, if that verse gets included and it's so far, so far is just, unknowingly said that wisdom is exactly the way the narrator has described Job, you know, yeah. sort of laughing at so far. So, I mean, who, yeah. 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 And this is what you run into with Job all the time, which is that one interpretive decision depends on another. Absolutely. Which yeah. depends on another interpretive decision. And that's what keeps you and I employed, Scott. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can, I mean, it is one, one way to connect them is to say something. I'm the non-Joban. I'm sure. Right? right. So I'm just throwing stuff out there because it's fun. Uh, but is one, one way to read it is then to say that, well, yeah, you can't do these expeditions to find wisdom, right? Because you're not going to be able to find wisdom. But if you fear the Lord, you have wisdom. And look, go back to Job chapter one. Job has this fear of the Lord. So Job has this wisdom. Job has this wisdom that all the human ex, you know, expeditions could not attain. He has it. And would that be in contrast then to the friend's? Who are, who are themselves claiming to have some kind of wisdom to offer? Am, am I overreading now? No, no, I mean, that's interesting. I think that sounds interesting. It may, may, as if it were to put you in the company of Job in chapter one. Now, it may, may be daunting if you think, well, when is the adversary going to go talk to God about me and all these kinds of things? But it would still be, you too could be in the company of Job hmm, if yeah. you can submit, you know, that sort of thing. Hmm. I like that. Right. Uh yeah, I like it, Ronnie. Okay. Write it up. <laughs> well, um, to finish off our time, Scott, and we really appreciate the time that you've taken us, uh, taken to walk us through this passage, uh, we'd like to draw on the genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected, the blurb. Um, oh, yeah. So, do you have a blurb that you could share with us about? It could be a book, but it could also be anything else that you might recommend to our listeners that they might find helpful in their lives. We've had a number of different blurbs already this season. Uh, Brent Strawn recommended horse mats. If you want to set up a home gym, then use horse yes. mats. No, that's true. You go to the tractor supply and you get those instead of the mats that it costs like way too much money. You go to the tractor supply because they have to be, Yeah. You get the grow mats, I, I, and it's I, way cheaper. I, I did not know about. I didn't this. know Brent knew that either. I didn't know he was in the equestrian stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, any anything you'd like to blurb for us? Yes. Uh, well, everyone has to read Gilgamesh, and I like this translation. That's Andrew George's translation, oh, yeah. and it's a Penguin edition, so it's real cheap. It's yeah. not very expensive. Um, right. For Job, if you want to have your interest peaked and um, you're comfortable with something not being a, an ecclesial translation or a, a translation for a synagogue, a scholarly translation that is bound to have you um, interested and that is really brilliantly done. I, I really like Ed Greenstein's translation for that purpose. It's, yeah. it's a very brilliant work. Um, yeah. You just have to be willing to let it be an argument with all the other ones all the time. And yeah. that's, but that's a part of learning and that's fun. 
And well, then, and Scott, let me just interrupt for a second. I'm yeah. glad that you mentioned yeah. that because it's a perfect segue. Our next episode will be with Ed Greenstein on chapters 29 to 31. Oh, good. Yeah. So listeners, well, I, opportunity I, to hear him in person uh, doing some of that debate <laughs> with other interpreters. Well, it's great. And I love Ed and he's been very kind to me. And um, yeah, really, really happy with that and what he's done. And it's a it's a good example. I'm, I mean, I don't think Ed agrees with my reading of the poem. I don't think I agree with everything Ed does. That when since when's that the point? Right. That's mm-hmm. not. Right. It's not the point. We're good, we're friends. I love his work. I benefit from it. And he's told me that it's done the same for him. And I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you will no matter what happens or what you agree with or disagree, you will learn from Ed. It's yeah. great. I'm so glad to hear that. And then finally, if I may, this commentary on Jonah. By Amy Erickson. Um, this is the latest Illuminations commentary volume, and especially for anyone who is um, who thinks Jonah's a simple book, um, can find out that perhaps it's not as simple as we thought. Um, and as you probably know, Jonah has a vast, vast uh, history of interpretation and reception. And this is a really well done and creative commentary. Again, bound to make you think. Very provocative. I lo- I'm really proud of that. So. Yeah. Well, Scott, thanks for taking the time to guide us through uh, Job chapter 28. Uh, you've taken us down the mine, and you're yeah. thankful for that. And you Or know, to the ends of the earth. Or yeah, either the way. Earth. It's just sorry, dark not there, the mine. I'm sorry. It's dark wherever we are. <laughs> I just got to pick a metaphor that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, well, thank and you. To, yeah, and to our listeners, if you uh, went on this expedition yeah. and you... I'm now I'm going to mix up the metaphor now, yeah, but if you good. did find cool. wisdom on this expedition with <laughs> Scott, Will, and I, uh, well, please go to our website, thetwotestaments.com. There you can sub- subscribe, uh, go to Facebook. You can find our Facebook group and our Facebook page. And please share this podcast with others. Go to you wherever uh, you subscribe to podcasts and give us whatever it is, a like, uh, you know, whatever it is you do to subscribe and share and all those things. Yes. We don't want the half, you know, the half star rating. Um, we'd prefer not to. or the four, even four. I mean, why four? Like be generous. Go for gold. Go for gold. We'd like a five star rating. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.